everybody, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of February 10th, 2020. We're going to be talking about an SNL writer and their internet beefs. We're going to be talking about the very exciting Sundance Ignite program. We're going to cover two tech stories this week because they are interesting because they seem to have their numbers backwards. Canon talking about an 8K camera and Red talking about a 6K camera is a very ironic turn of fate. Um, and we're going to wrap all of that up with an Ask No Film School about Final Cut 7. Our first story this week comes to us. Editor-in-Chief George Elliman, lay it down for us. Yeah, so this happened a little while ago. Really, it's about how social media interacts with an industry career. And the, the post we have up on the website is titled SNL writers, social media beef exposes hard Hollywood truths. And the idea is like, so this guy, um, Jack Allison basically was just tweeting that he doesn't like SNL and it's not funny, which is not a totally like new thought. And he wrote about how the SNL writing submission site sort of has a disclaimer that it can take your ideas. And if you link to your social media in it, which it asks you to do, the implication is that it can also take jokes or content from your social media. So he sort of thought of this as like a, you know, this isn't so great. And I think uh, here's what his one of his tweets said. Anyway, everyone go apply to work on the worst show on TV so they can steal your tweets. Um, SNL writer, performer Michael Che, I think that's the pronunciation. That is Michael Who Che. Who is on Weekend Update, I guess. He was then... It, it, Activated by this, and this sort of turned into a an extended back and forth between SNL writer Che and this guy Jack Allison, who has actually written on Late Night before, um, but it really just became like a long going um, feud. That uh, you know, Allison's not looking for a job in comedy, but basically there's been some trolling going on and we link to the whole story and what's going on. And there's like kind of like a cyber bullying or a back and forth cyber bullying. And I think, you know, the reason we covered it and it was kind of blowing up on the internet in general was because people in Hollywood are very careful about what they say about other people in Hollywood, even if it's just opinions, this is like a longstanding thing. Um, because you never know who you might work with next. So if you're out there bad-mouthing stuff, you know, you might end up working with them or in a writer's room with them. And then, you know, in the end, as we always say, or as um, the social network famously said, the internet is written in ink. So anything you tweet or say out there is, you know, fodder for the future. It can come back to get you. And that the old joke, there's a tweet for everything. But... You know, this is just like Jack Allison doesn't seem to care because I guess he's not looking to pursue a career in uh, writing comedy anymore. But it, on the flip side of this, there's also this like, why is the writer Michael Che taking such issue and getting so into it? We've seen uh, we. We've seen this happen where there are burner accounts and there are celebrities or athletes who really get into it with fans or critics, um, amateur critics that. It just it's I think it's a bad look, but I think the big overarching thing here is just like as a person who has opinions and has a platform because everyone does, how do you handle 
you know, trying to maintain a career and a positive presence and also voice your opinions and all that good stuff. I have so many thoughts on this. First off, I think that Michael Che loves the drama. And I think that in 2020, we've proven over and over that like the drama in and of itself is never a bad thing. Like, you know, it does like it just it's more attention, more people paying attention to you, more people re- remembering your name, like in politics as well as in entertainment, engaging in a little bit of Internet drama doesn't seem to hurt you or make you look bad. There's a bunch of uh, there's so many other things here that has to do with like different generational attitudes towards the Internet. Like there are things 24 year olds put on the internet where I'm like, don't you ever want to have a job? But on the same time, it's also something that we all, you know, you have a funny idea or a thought. Like I remember once completely forgetting. I have friends at Yahoo posting somewhere, Twitter or Facebook being like, does Yahoo know that they only exist so people can go to the website to see if their internet is working? Cause we're sure that it won't be in our cache, which is like, <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. And it was just like a pivy, like, cause I had just used yahoo.com yet again to see if my internet was working. Uh, and like two years later, my friend at Yahoo mentioned something to me and she was like, I know you hate Yahoo, but, and I was like, Oh my God, you still remember this stupid joke I made about Yahoo two years ago. And you're a nice person. And I don't hate you. I don't even hate Yahoo. I just don't go to yahoo.com very often. I think that that's, I, I, I think that's a really good, point i have met people who when you people are the internet dehumanizes everything and the problem is that we talked about this a lot when the joker came out because we had a post up about not liking the joker um one of our writers and a lot of our community was like it's not good to go negative with filmmakers because we're all in this together essentially which is part of the no film school credo or uh, no film school mission statement, but you know, human beings are have feelings, and when you get to know people, often face to face, person to person, you don't want to criticize or or hate on them. But when you're in the Ethernet or the ether of the internet, or just the, that amorphous space, it's really easy to be like really harsh for the sake of the joke. Or just because you don't put a face and a name on something like Yahoo, which is just a massive company, or the or Joker, which is a massive movie, you don't think about the individuals and things like that. I do think that there is a healthy balance, and I also think that in general there is a little bit of an oversensitivity that can kick in of like uh, not everything. They try not to take that stuff personally. Like I made a movie that was out on the internet and. A lot of people said like extremely disparaging things and I just laugh it off as much as I can because that's the internet, right? So so I think that, but on the other hand, I know that some of the cyberbullying stuff has gotten way out of control and has like put people, like things have been said that are atrocious. So I guess I'm just trying to say like it's a complicated gray area. But then the bigger issue in all of this is actually what the writer Allison was objecting to to begin with, which is... Like, so it's always complicated when you submit a packet. And to a certain extent, I completely understand why SNL says if you submit a packet to us, we have the rights to everything you submit. And what what for me, they're really saying there is not we're going to make your skits without paying you. They're saying 
We're SNL. We do topical skits. We have skits about Donald Trump every week. We have skits about, you know, Instagram and whatnot. If you write a skit that's vaguely similar to what we're already working on, we don't want to be sued over it. And that is a fair thing for SNL to say. I get why SNL says that. And so I totally understand why if you submit a packet, the packet belongs to SNL. However, first off, having to include your social media links with your packet is something that like still feels a little black mirror to me because I'm old. But beyond that, the idea that then your social media content is somehow nebulously also fair game. I can totally imagine the SNL lawyers writing it such to protect SNL. So, you know, because they're jokes that just write themselves, right? There's like, I guarantee you SNL will have a joke about Nancy Pelosi tearing up the State of the Union. And I guarantee you nine writers who've submitted packets to SNL will also tweet jokes about that tear up of the State of the Union. You know what? Yeah. You know what's crazy about what Twitter has opened up? And it's exactly what you're talking about here is that so many of us have the exact same joke oh yeah gonna make about stuff or some version of it and then if you're yeah and if they they don't want it makes sense why yeah they don't want to be held accountable because um there's a thing of like you have to protect your ideas and you don't want people to be able to just take them and and steal them or rewrite them or whatever but there's also a truth which is that it's it's, 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 it's often less about the idea and more about the execution. Yeah. So like someone could have the same idea or overhear your idea for a movie, say. It may be very hard for them to do anything with it. And there have been a couple incidents where there's one with M. Night Shyamalan recently. Are you familiar oh, with yeah. that story? And, um, where, and Gregorini, who actually, full disclosure, she once color graded a movie at my old post house. I don't know if that's a conflict of interest, but it makes yeah. me vaguely more <laughs> likely to take her side. Um, but, okay, well, so you know the story, though, either yeah. way. But yeah, like, like I always think like there are like great ideas, like unique ideas are amazing. They're like a crown jewel. But there are a lot of ideas that overlap enough that you could say, like, I had that idea. I've probably said this on the podcast before, but I went in and pitched something to a very major production company once, and they were really touchy about like, no, no, no. And they didn't want our leave behind or anything. And they essentially said, we have something very similar, which oftentimes is a lie. But then many, many years later, I saw the very something similar thing get released. And I thought, oh, yeah. Like, and I guess if I had left that leave behind, I could have been the kind of person who would say like, hey, by the way, I came into that office. I presented you with this thing. And now you're doing something similar. And and it actually wasn't because of my leave behind. Yeah. I mean, there are... Like, I don't talk about this much, but I, I once wrote a script that I spent many years trying to get made that was about the young romantic adventures of Jean-Luc Godard, which seems like something that, like, not many people are going to write that movie. He, like, falls in love with a girl in Bakersfield, and it's sort of like this big 60s fantasy romance thing. And then, like, four years ago, a movie about the young romantic adventures of Jean-Luc Godard that's like a fantasy thing that's, like, loosely tied to reality came out and flopped. And like, I guarantee you they had not read my script. I guarantee you that there was no connection, but it's like, you know, there are ideas that just sort of float through the ether and yeah. it is a complicated thing to try and lawyer through that. I don't, yeah, but I don't know that you should have to put in your Twitter handle to submit your packet to SNL, yeah. but I, I, yeah, I, don't I know. think what's interesting about this whole story is that I can really see both sides, not only from that standpoint, 
but also from the just the two guys having this social media conflict. I can sort of see being annoyed by the guy who's just trashing you out there, and I can also sort of see being annoyed by the guy who's got a show like SNL, like wasting his time to bully you on Instagram. Like both things sort of seem a little like eh to me. <laughs> so like so I can but just like the legal matter of it. Like I can completely understand why SNL takes those precautions, but I also feel like requiring access to someone's social account and then saying you're not liable for taking anything from it feels weird because that's how a lot of people build their brand, especially with comedy. You know what I'm going to say that the biggest news in all of this is for me that SNL has an open submission sites for comedy packets. So it turns out if you are interested in writing comedy, SNL has a site where if you are willing to include your Twitter handle, you can submit your packet, which is crazy that we are now in a future where that is that open. I feel bad for the poor intern who has to read all <laughs> of those submissions because I can only imagine it is a large volume looking for that diamond in the rough. Um, but this all actually serves as a nice transition to Sundance. Going back to something you said earlier about negativity in the internet, I'm just going to say full disclosure here. When I hate a movie, I don't tend to, like when I hate a movie or a product, I very rarely write about it. Mostly, I mean, if you guys listen to me on the podcast or read me, I'm a relatively positive guy. When I review something and I hate it, I usually just write about it. Don't write about it unless it's something where, because I feel like a lot of what we were doing no film school is about discovery. It's about like, hey, look at this thing you might not have seen. Yeah. The only really negative reviews I've ever written are something where it's like, oh, you're all going to be aware of this. This is a thing that's out in the world. And holy cow, it's not good. Be careful. Those tend to yeah. be my negatives. But it was this really interesting experience where I, one of the nice things about being at Sundance this year is I saw some movies I really liked and I got to share a lot about it. There's a lot of really fun stuff about ha bad hair that I think people should be aware of and Hulu just picked it up and people, it should be on people's radar. But there was a movie I hated at Sundance and I hated it so much. And it was so interesting because then I just haven't talked about it at all. Um, <laughs> and like, and I feel like actually like, I love bitching about movies I hate with my friends, but I feel no obligation to write about movies I hate on the internet because also tone is taken so differently. And I feel like if I wrote a really bad review of this film on the internet, it would, it would like somehow imply that I don't think the filmmaker should be alive. Like, I feel like the internet takes things so <laughs> seriously that it would feel like I was like personally threatening this filmmaker when like, Really, I just didn't like the movie as much as I loved All Kinds of Limbo, the VR piece I saw, which was the best thing I saw at Sundance this year because it was absolutely mind-blowing amazing. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and I think that it's valuable for all creatives to think about how do we, how do we work with the things we don't like? Like, how do we handle that in the public arena? And I have a reputation in the private arena of being a person who hates everything, like being an extremely negative audience member. But <clears throat> I also caveat heavily as saying, I believe it's extremely difficult to make a really good movie oh my God. or TV show. So I don't think it's a personal thing. I am always amazed and like I love to gush when I see something that I think is great because I just think it's so hard to pull that off. I mean, there are people out there who are just happy to see something and have it be okay. And they don't need it to be like earth shattering. And I think that that's also like, it's, I, I, my feeling is it's, it's important to separate like the personal and the personal attack from it as much as you can. Um, but, but the yeah, internet doesn't allow for that anymore. To, 
I feel like anytime you write about anything on the internet, it always devolves immediately yeah. to the personal for yeah, all the listeners, which is why like I will have negative conversations in person. I will talk negatively about films in the classroom, but like, I just don't want it to become a thing on the internet. Yeah. Look like Martin Scorsese couldn't, he tried very hard to heavily, yeah. heavily condition his statements about Marvel by, by saying how impressed he was by the crafts people and how he tried to make it not personal. And there was just no way. Well, and then the internet took it and was like, the internet was like, Martin Scorsese hates Paul Rudd. Martin Scorsese punched Paul <laughs> Rudd in the face. Martin Scorsese and Paul Rudd battled to the death. And you're like, but he complimented the crafts people. He's just not interested. In, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a tricky thing talking about work and it's, it's, it, the internet is a, is a new tricky place in a way that I don't feel like newspapers were. I feel like you read Pauline yeah. Kael, like in a collection being really mean about a movie she didn't like in 1972. Like, like Star Wars. Yeah. I think, right? Didn't she? <laughs> and there's no implication that Pauline Kael hates George Lucas and wants him to die. I hope not. I hope she wanted the best for George Lucas and just didn't enjoy that one movie. I'm curious to know and to learn more about how better to handle it so you can have opinions. Opinions are important, but you can also not be. I like your advice of like, you know, just don't write that on the Internet. I also think it's always better to be when you're writing about something you really enjoy. It, com it comes out different yeah. when you're talking about something you really enjoy. It comes out different and it's contagious and it's kind of fun. And I think the Yeah. Getting down on stuff just is uh, maybe better to leave off the internet. I would agree there. But so that leads us to a next. It's like a mini story. We don't actually have like a big story to talk about here, but we wanted to flag for everybody that Sundance Ignite is open for submissions right now. If, if Sundance Ignite is not on your radar and if you're over 25, you should probably skip this section. But Sundance Ignite is a Sundance program specifically for helping 18 to 25 year olds launch their career. So it is a networking, introductions to film industry, workshop program that's specifically targeted at young creators. You don't have to have made a film. You don't have to have a, a project you're trying to launch. You just have to know, I'm going to work in movies. And Sundance Ignite is a program that's designed to help you. So we have a post up right now on the site about that. And if you're one of our younger listeners, you should totally take a look. The post uh, is an in-depth interview with Meredith. I believe the, her last name is pronounced Lavit. And she's the director of Sundance Ignite. And she spoke to me extensively about what you can get out of Ignite as a fellow, how the whole year works as a fellow, what their goals are, how to apply, what they're looking for in an application. And I think, again, I've talked to, I've interviewed festival programmers for Sundance as well this year. All of that is up on the No Film School podcast. You can listen to those interviews. You can read those interviews on the site, nofilmschool.com. But the great thing is you get a lot of insight into what they look for when they watch a film, a submission or an application or anything. And I really think that their in insights apply to anything you pitch or create at any age, at any level. These are valuable. Like these are people who see a ton of stuff and know what people are looking for, what gatekeepers are looking for. And I think there's a lot of value for anybody in that. But definitely if you're age 18 to 25, anywhere in the world, check out this post. Check out Sundance Ignite application. They're accepting applications between now and March 17th. You don't even need a super finished, polished piece. Of course, that's better. But what you really just need to demonstrate is that you have a real passion and 
a fire burning to tell a story of some kind from your point of view. And that's my, that, that like, d- just check it out, read it, and definitely look into it. It's a cool opportunity. You'll make all kinds of connections. Up next, tech news. Now, this is a weird one. We're covering two tech stories this week. And the reason why we're covering two tech stories is because they got their numbers backwards. So, Red has released all of the dimensional drawings and full specs and everything for the Red Komodo 6K, which is the new Red camera first announced back in July of 2019, going to be coming out this summer. Very exciting camera. A lot of people, Red fans, and actually a lot of non-Red fans, like I'm very, I'm not, I'm, I'm neutral on Red. I think they were great innovators. I like a lot of the stuff they do. I'm very excited about the Komodo, even though you wouldn't call me a fanboy of Red because I also end up shooting a lot of Alexa. And it's 6K resolution. And then our other big story of the week is that Canon has made it official that they have an 8K camera in development. So why are we covering these two stories together? Well, what's really interesting about this is that, you know, for the longest time, you know, I I remember doing so many jobs in like 28, 2008, 2009, 2010, where it's like we have a 5D Mark II that shoots HD. And if you want big resolution, you're doing 4K or there was a while where there was 4.5K and then 5K out of an Epic. And so, you know, Red has always been the we're going to have more resolution than everybody else camera. They had 4K before everybody else. They had 6K before everybody else. They had 8K before everybody else. Resolution has always been their play. They're always like, we're going to have more resolving power than anybody else. Canon is focused on lots of other things, hasn't really had anything in the 8K space. And now Canon is saying, all right, we're here. We're ready for 8K. Um, I, Canon doesn't always feel like a super like high-end professional tool, but it's important to remember that like Canon is the look of YouTube. YouTubers are all Canon. There's so many music videos, Canon. There's some commercials a little bit Canon, like Canon. Docs. Doc. Canon is everywhere in Doc. And so Canon finally coming out with an 8K camera is going to be really exciting for a lot of people. But it's also really important to remember that resolution isn't everything. And what's exciting to me personally about the Komodo is, you know, the price point is going to be a reasonably affordable price point. And it's a red 6K camera. 6K is still a ton of resolution. It's a lot of Ks. It's a lot of Ks. Uh, It's more than the 4Ks. And it's internal red raw. And beyond everything else Red has done, and they've done a lot of cool stuff, internal raw recording, which there were a lot of patent battles about last year in 2019, internal raw recording remains one of their standout features. Red raw is a very robust technology that gives you a whole lot of flexibility in post-production. And having that internal red raw, also looking at all the full specs that are finally out, a production-ready camera, Audio inputs, audio outputs, video outputs, dual battery mounts. Really nice is they look like more consumer battery mounts. You can have two of them on there so you can swap it out. And it's all built around the same lens mount. So that 8K that's coming from Canon, RF mount, and the red Komodo RF mount. And the the RF mount's the thing I really want to flag here as being super exciting. So the RF mount, if you don't remember, is Canon's new mount that is designed specifically for full-frame mirrorless cameras, the EOS R line. And it's super exciting because it's got a really shallow flange focal distance, which means if you already own a bunch of EF lenses, you can adapt to it. You can also get an adapter to PL mount lenses for it, or you can just use native RF mount lenses, which are coming out from Canon and also from Sigma and a whole bunch of other vendors. So there's a whole bunch of cool stuff 
going on in the Komodo that I think makes it interesting. What do you know the price point? It's under six. It's under six thousand. If you didn't own anything else. And that's just like the machine, right? Yeah. That, like, like, cause I think it's important to always distinguish. I know a lot of people know this stuff, but like, you're not getting all the pieces you need to go out and shoot a movie when you spend that money on that thing. Yeah. Right. It's camera body. Yeah. You're going to buy lenses. You're going to buy hand grips. You're going to buy a monitor. Although what's really fun is in the press release images that came out, right? Like one thing that red has taken a lot of slack about in the past is they've taken a lot of slack for a, you know, it's a $1,500 monitor you have to buy for a red camera. And it, you know, the people do teardowns online and they're like, this is $80 worth of parts for like a little touchscreen from 2007. Like, why is it $1,500? Professional markup is always higher because professionals need a bigger support infrastructure. You need to find a way to pay for a customer support rep to be on hold if you are having a problem on a shoot and you call them. So I, I don't mind the markup necessarily, but with the Komodo, it's also really interesting. In all the press photos, it's not a red monitor. It's like a $500 small HD focus monitor. So you can work more easily with other companies' accessories, which will often be more affordable. A lot of the things that used to require that red touch screen to do, you're going to be able to do with your smartphone, your iOS or Android phone is going to be useful for going into all the menu settings and stuff like that. So you're not going to have to have the $1,500 red monitor. And, uh, you know, like small HD makes this amazing. Um, it's a focus monitor and it's a transmitter. So with one accessory, you're getting your wireless transmitter and your focus monitor built right into the Komodo. And, you know, the, even that with the, with the transmitter is still more affordable than the old red monitor. So you're seeing stuff like that that is making the whole ecosystem also a little bit more affordable. The most interesting thing for me was seeing, uh, I think it was a Cinema 5D article, but in the Cinema 5D review, it was just like a small HD monitor. And I was like, oh, okay. That's not the kind of thing that usually comes out from Red where they're showing other companies' accessories on the body. But I think it does make it more approachable and... Uh, and honestly, the small HD focus monitors with their built-in transmitters or their built-in receivers are just so great that I can see why Red would say, all right, well, we're just going to let you do that because then you have wireless video built in. Let's talk about the other camera. So the other camera is tricky because we don't have a lot of specs yet. So it is basically just Canon saying to the public, all right, guys, we are doing 8K. So it's not a official... We don't have a full spec list on the Canon 8K. We just have that there is going to be an 8K EOS R. And when we say EOS R, we're talking about that it, it looks more like a still camera than a video camera, right? At the top end, the C700 Mark II and stuff like that, 8K wouldn't be a surprise. Those are $30,000 cinema cameras. When they have 8K, they might even have 8K already, and I missed it. That's not a big deal. EOS R is the smaller body. EOS R is the, it looks like a stills camera, basically. They're two or $3,000 for just the body. And the fact that you're going to be able to get 8K in a camera body that'll be $3,000, $3,500, but it's 8K capture will be really interesting. However, you're not going to be able to internally record that to RAW. So the internal recording on that is going to end up being something a little bit more uh, traditional, you know, some sort of compressed codec that might not offer you the color grading flexibility that you get out of the red RAW on the Komodo. So another interesting thing about both of these cameras is that right now uh, the red Komodo is CFast, but 
it looks like both of these platforms are probably going to use CF Express. If you don't remember CF Express, CF Express is the new format that's designed to replace SD cards. Uh, it's available in three sizes. The one size, the B size is roughly the size of an SD card. There's also the larger size, which I think is what we're going to see in the Komodo. But CF Express is much faster for data transfer than the traditional SD cards. So even though it's going to be frustrating because every filmmaker owns like a dozen SD cards, and now it's going to be time that we start buying CF Express cards, um, the faster maximum data transfer of CF Express cards is what's going to allow companies like Canon to plug that 8K into a cons not a consumer card, but a more affordable card. And the same is true with Red. Right now, it's just CFast 2.0, but the same slot for CFast 2.0 also supports CF Express. And Red has said they're working on eventual CF Express support. So it'll be as the camera comes out with the Komodo, new features will roll out over time. All right, and then our final item of the week, we have an Ask No Film School. And this one is fun. I, I mean, it's painful for them, but it's fun for us. Kaya Shanti asks, um, I'm working on a documentary on Final Cut 7 and my laptop died. I've got a new laptop but it turns out I actually can't dual boot it to install the old version of the OS I need to run Final Cut 7. I'm willing to move this over to Premiere Pro, but what do I do? And we have a whole lot of suggestions for this. So here's the first thing I'm gonna say, and it's already going to annoy half of the audience, but I'm going to say that one of the many benefits one of the benefits of going to a post house or if you're an independent filmmaker building sort of your home version of a post house is the ability to keep old things alive. If you go to any major post house, there's going to be a weird old Windows 7 machine or there's going to be a Mac mini running a four or five old version of Mac OS X for just this very reason. Because this isn't just a Mac thing. This is every piece of software. There's going to be compatibility issues. So famously, Final Cut 7 is end of life. And with the newest version of uh, OS X 10.13, I think it is, you can't even install Final Cut 7. It won't even support it. But this is why I think it's always worth it to keep a Mac mini somewhere around you know, a $500 Craigslist Mac mini running, you know, Snow Leopard or something relatively old that you can just keep these installs in. I think that's such a good habit for filmmakers to get in, to keep that thing alive where your plugins are working, where you're, where you're doing the bare minimum upgrades that, you know, let you keep those older things going. Every post house does this. And I think independent filmmakers who are doing their own post should try as much as possible to keep that stuff around. Now, on top of that, one of the nice things about Final Cut Pro 7 is, uh, and you suggest this in your post, I didn't read the full thing, was, hey, can I send my project file to someone else and they send me XMLs? You can totally do that. I highly recommend that you do that. Um, and those XMLs will help you move the timelines over. Now, you mentioned moving to Premiere. I totally think you can move to Premiere, but I would actually recommend Resolve as an intermediate step. In my experience, bringing the XML into Resolve, checking all of your work in Resolve, and then putting it over to Premiere is probably, it's a little extra work, but I think it's gonna be a little more robust. The XML tool set in Resolve and the like checking against an export tool set's much better, because 
Here's the thing. The XML is not going to be perfect. You're going to want to go one shot at a time and check it against your last good export. You know, if you haven't, if you've deleted all your exports, you're going to have to go to the last export you put on Vimeo to send to a collaborator, or get notes, download that. But Resolve has a really great tool, set of like offline and conform tools so you can check that XML. And you're going to need to do that because no XML is ever perfect. Sometimes it's going to, you know, or you might have two clips in your footage that are both named clip 001. Like that happens with some cheaper consumer cameras and you're going to want to go through the XML and tell it which clip 001 you mean and Resolve has a better tool set for that. The thing to remember in all of this though is that bins don't move over. And so I can't tell you how many times I've had people be like, oh, well, I'm switching, you know, I'm going to move this project from like Premiere to Avid or Avid to whatever. And uh, they're always like, oh, I'll just use the thing to move my most recent timeline over. But a project is so much more than one timeline. All of that work you go into organizing all of your media into folders or bins or whatever it's called in whatever program you're working in, that's real work and labor. And there's no way that I know of to move that from project to project yet. So just be prepared for a lot of extra work sort of organizing your media as you move it to a new platform. I really wish somewhere on the internet someone would make, if someone wants to team up with me and do this, let's do this. There should be a website you could go to where you can upload your Final Cut Pro project and it just looks for all the timelines inside and makes XMLs for all the timelines. Because that would be like, I would pay $10 for that to just go through my old XML projects and make sure I have my old Final Cut projects and make sure I have XMLs. Is there a reason that uh, like bringing it into to the current Final Cut is not on the list of suggestions? So there is no direct translation for Final Cut uh, 7 to Final Cut 10. Uh, there is a tool called 7 to X, which will uh, move... I think it just moves timelines between the two. I don't think it'll move your whole project between the two. Uh, there's two reasons why. One is that he didn't ask about, he suggested Premiere. Uh, and so I just forgot to mention Final Cut 10. The other reason is that Final Cut 10 is so radically different in the way in which it organizes media right. and the way in which its timeline works in all sorts of ways. Final Cut 10 is such a new thing that I think it just doesn't, Handing over between the two has never been easy. And I think in this situation, it doesn't necessarily, I just don't think it's a doable. I don't think that would be your easiest move. The impression I got from the post is the documentary is almost done and you're not like going to work on it for another two years. You right. really just want to finish as quickly as possible. And I think in that case, you're going to have a much easier time with Resolve, which is free or Premiere than you're going to necessarily have going through Final Cut 10 because the translation process is harder. If you wanted to switch to cutting in Final Cut 10 and cut in Final Cut 10 for a couple more years, that would be a different animal. But I don't know that it's going to be worth the work there. All right, everybody, that has been the No Film School podcast for this week. Be sure to always check us out on nofilmschool.com. Be sure to always ask questions on the boards or ask at nofilmschool.com because we like answering your questions. And uh, this is Charles Hain. You can check me out on the Twitters and the Instagrams and all of those places at Charles Hain. And I have a web series coming out in March called Salty Pirate. Check it out. You can see our trailer at saltypirate.tv. It's going to be on the Ficto app and a whole bunch of other places. But uh, yeah, that's coming out end of March. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief from No Film School. Make sure to like the podcast and rate it and comment and subscribe for more.